Hello, hello, and welcome back, everybody, to JavaScript Jabber. We're at episode 579, if I'm not mistaken. But that's not what's important. What's important is that we will be talking about remolt. That's like molting, but remolting. It probably stands for multiplex or something like that. Anyway, we have our (laughs) special guest today, Noam Honig. Hi. And Yoni Rapaport. Hello, that's right. And then, you of forgot course, me. <laughs> wait. Ah, and of course, okay. our everyday average panelist, <laughs> web perf expert extraordinaire, <laughs> Dan Shapiro. Hey, how are, how are you doing? Hi from a nice and sunny Tel Aviv, like, where, like I like to say now, the weather is great, but the politicians are terrible. <laughs> all all agree. to planet Earth. Yeah, no, no. We we got some special people uh, yeah, running our political system, ruining our political system, uh, whatever you want to call it. Well, I don't know much about that, but also some of our listeners don't know much about CRUD apps, and Remolt is for CRUD apps. So shall we first talk about what does CRUD mean in 2023, and is it any different from what it meant in... Rails. So CRUD is an acronym for Create, Read, Update, and Delete. It's what all uh, data-driven applications do pretty much all the time. Imagine if you have a a list of orders for some kind of uh, online store, then you create an order, you read the active orders, you are able to update an order or delete an order. It's the basic operations for any data-driven applications. So it's not about being... uh cruddy application. It's it's actually something that you want to aspire to be rather than avoid being. Pretty much. It's something that I want to just exist. Something that I want to just work instead of implementing it again and again and again and again. Yeah, for sure. I was just kidding. Uh, it's also <laughs> worth noting that when we're looking at how HTTP works or the HTTP protocol, it's actually built on the concepts of CRUD. The, the type of HTTP commands that you have, right? Exactly. I think that when they designed HTTP, they designed it to be a CRUD for resources, where you can get a resource, post a resource, put or patch, still debatable, and delete a resource. Yeah, although practically speaking, most web applications mostly use just get and, and post. Relative, n- Not all of them actually use uh, uh, update and, and delete. Well, if you are going to dare to use put and patch, you better darn sure use them correctly. Because you can be forgiven for using post for everything. But if you start using put, you better darn sure follow the spec. <laughs> yeah. 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 For, for those who don't know, get is the read from CRUD. So get, you just give a URL and you get the resource back. And post can be used both for create and for update. Although for update, I think there's also, like you said, there's also a, a, a separate uh, command if you prefer. But post posting back a form data effectively is can be used to put data, like I said, either create or update in the system. Um, By the way, if you, and delete, like I said, is rarely used. If you take a layer above HTTP and look at REST, for example, that's a standard that uses the, the CRUD uh, methods or, action, or actions 
uh, with put and delete as well, not just get and post. And it's part of the part of the spec and part of how how you build a REST API. And I think we had the acronym CRUD before Rails, but I think when Rails popularized REST, it popularized CRUD because of Active Record and and whatnot. And so for me, that's what it kind of harkens back to is when I think CRUD, I think cookie cutter stuff. I think things that are easy to create models for where there's not really complex relationships. It's pretty much parent, child, maybe a mutual relationship like a friendship, but it's it's pretty pretty straightforward stuff. This is owned by that. This can own one or more things. These things can follow each other. And that's that's kind of the set of the the relationships that I expect to see in CRUD and REST applications. Is by the that, way, I, I didn't know that uh, REST came out of Rails. Uh, it didn't come out of Rails. It's part of HTTP, but it was... It, I I learned about it with Rails. Rails, Ruby on Rails gave you a framework, which then some people went to follow, you know, too strictly, but of, you know, categories things, categorizing things. You have users is a collection. Uh, favorite books is a collection. Then you have slash users, slash user ID, slash favorite books, slash ID, or in the management interface, you could have directly favorite books slash ID. Mm-hmm. But and, people people got crazy with the nesting things, you know, umph team layers deep, and then it got really slow because you could just do one request, you know, get profile and have it, you know, fetch the user and their favorite books and their top 10 friends. But people were very draconian about it and then started saying, oh, no, 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 users has to be fetched separately and bookmarks has to be fetched separately and friend list has to be fetched. And then it was, you know, 100 requests and, 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 and all those criticisms arrived. Huh? And then we got GraphQL. <laughs> even, even yeah, GraphQL worse. was kind of the opposite draconian approach. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, actually, I go back with CRUD all the way back to the 90s. I think that the first time I heard of CRUD was when I started developing back in the 90s, you know, when, when SQL was uh, popular. Well, yeah, and, I mean, no, I yeah. think that CRUD goes all the way back to the 50s or 60s, really. I think that the, when we started having relational databases, that's when I think CRUD really got popularized. So it's way earlier than the web. But as we as we are explaining, you know, it the web is tied to CRUD, and a, and a lot of the websites that we actually build, unless they're simple content sites, are effectively front end for CRUD applications because that's at the end of the day what most of us do uh, most of the time. Uh, because if you're building an e-commerce website in one way or another, it's a CRUD application and, and so on and so forth. It's, yeah, I just think it's Go worth ahead. mentioning in the context of, of you know the conversation we're going to have about remote that, like you said, Dan, there's CRUD probably in every you know basic web app or web system that you build. But there, I think there's a difference between having CRUD to a certain extent in, in any web application to having CRUD applications or CRUD intensive applications, business applications where the main function of users is creating data, put, updating data, fetching uh, complex filters on data, kind of um, applications that have CRUD really at the core and, 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 and is used very extensively throughout the systems, as opposed to having you know, a website with a lot of static content and a, a form here or there, or you know, a CRUD functionality here and there. 
So something like an admin console, for example, where you might be managing whatever types of entities, users or whatever. and, and Or yeah, an ERP exactly. system or a CRM system or other internal uh, custom systems for logistics, for manufacturing. We're, we're, I think remote, again, we're, remote can be used in, in almost any context of web applications, but it is it has a great advantage in these scenarios for these types of systems. So we've mentioned Remalt a couple of times. What is it? So Remalt is a library that is specifically designed to create CRUD applications easily. It allows you to share, a, a, first of all, it's TypeScript-based and it leverages TypeScript. And the big idea behind it is that previously people used to look at front-end code and back-end code. You're a front-end developer and back-end developer. Whereas Remalt perceives you as an application developer where you focus on your entities, okay? You have those entities as the single source of truth. And from those entities, the database is derived, the API is derived, the front-end query language is derived, authorization, authentication, all of those are revolved around the single source of truth, which is the entity itself. By the way, I have to say, uh, to mention that, you know, obviously it's challenging to describe APIs and, and usage in a podcast, uh, so it's worthwhile to note that you have a website for the Remote Project, and on that website is an excellent and not too long video that really highlights what Remote is. So if for anybody listening who, who thinks that this sounds interesting, but still has difficulties figuring out exactly what we're talking about, I highly recommend spending a couple of minutes and watching that video. But but going back to what you were describing, uh, when I watched that video and when I listened to your explanations, what kind of struck me in a lot of ways is that Remalt kind of does for the front end and for JavaScript and for web applications, kind of like what um, we mentioned it before, like uh, Rails does for, for the back end, that it kind of provides uh, a, a very easy to use uh, interface for accessing, well, effectively, databases, right? Yeah, so Remote is designed to bring the simplicities it used to have in Rails on the backend, okay, all the way through the full stack, which means in Remote, you define an entity, let's say a person entity that has some fields on it, like first name, last name, birth date, city, whatever. And the same entity is used both for your front-end code and the back-end code. And uh, around that entity, there's a concept of repository. I define a repository object. Then when that repository object is used on the front end, it will make REST API calls to the back end. But the same repository object, when it's used on the back end, will make database calls to the database. So effectively, I'm getting the same code style on the front end and the back end, and I'm getting code portability between the front end and the back end in a seamless manner. I'm writing within the same developer frame of mind data-related code on the front-end and the back-end. And when you mentioned entity in this context uh, and, and also mentioning TypeScript before, is entity a TypeScript interface or is it a JavaScript class or is it both? What is an entity in this context? An entity is a TypeScript type that has members to it, like first name, last name, date, so, whatever. So an interface, effectively. Yeah. It can also be defined as a class or, or as a type with a dynamic definition. But what's important is that Remote has to know 
uh, you know, it has to have a name for an entity and know the, the types of fields that it has. And then once you define that on, on you know, in your code base, Remote automatically creates all the API routes for creating, updating, deleting rows in the data and database, not only creating the routes, but also implementing the routes. So once they're called from the front end using the query language, using Remote on the front end, the the data goes goes to the back end, Remote handles the, the JSON between the front end and the back end, and stores data or fetches data from the database. And another important thing is that you get a query language you can use from the front end. Those queries get serialized. For example, you want to find person with a last with a last name Shapir. You would define that query using. A, Nobody wants to find me. Well, you know, <laughs> if, if someone for some reason is crazy enough to want to find you, you define that in your front end query using a type safe query that 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 is based on the type the person type, and then that requests. That, that filter is serialized and goes to the back end, goes all the way to the database, fetches the data, and returns that to the front end. So, so you don't yeah. actually write your queries in, in SQL or something like that. Instead, there's an adapter that translates your TypeScript type safe query language into, well, it might be SQL if it's an SQL database, but it might be something else. If it's some other types of da- type of database, correct, and that saves you a lot of boilerplate code that we that we are seeing when we're looking at at these big CRUD applications with dozens of entities. You're seeing a lot of boilerplate plumbing code used just to get that data from the front end into the database, to the back end, into the database, and all the way back. So Remote really ma- makes all that boilerplate disappear, and that's part of the fun. So- so, for example, if I want to put data into the database that I'm using, if I understand correctly, I can do it in either one of two ways. I can either use Remalt on the front end, in which case Remalt itself cre- generates REST. I, I, I use a Remalt object, and Remalt, that Remalt object uses um, internally RESTful APIs. It, it generates them itself. On the back end, it ha- it implemented the endpoint. It so it receives those APIs and performs the operations on the database. Or alternatively, I use the exact same API on the back end. In which case, there's obviously no RESTful APIs. It just talks directly to the database. Correct. Correct. And another fun thing you get just by using that, because again, Remote works with your entity types and not with raw SQL or other types of raw REST calls that you're making, we were able to really add, we've done that recently, to add a feature we call live queries, which means that with a slight change of syntax from the front end, instead of fetching static data into your React component, for example, you can subscribe to a live query that gets, that pushes data from the back end Back to you, back to the front end. Whenever uh, something change, whenever any any relevant change occurs in the database. So again, because so, of this simple syntax, that can just happen out of the box. How that that sounds pipe dreamy. It sounds like one of those things that's easy to put on a slide and hard to make work in practice. Has a lot of caveats of oh well, but it, it works if you do it this way. It works with this database. It works. As long as you don't update a sub property that isn't broken out by you know so so what are the caveats there what's 
What's the real story? We never heard that. So, you know, what you're saying, we never heard that about remote. It's the first time we hear <laughs> that, you know, there's, there's, there has to be caveats and there has to be uh, things that don't work if you don't really use it the same. But no, you can yeah, go in. Tell so, so once you start abstracting that uh, um, repetitive operations, then you can extend them and push the limits. So if I'm in control of the REST API and every update goes through my code at some point, I can just as easily be able to publish it when I need it. So what we've done there, we've created a, a, a imagine you have a query. I'm saying, look for people with last name Shapiro. Okay, so I'm, it's a REST API, it's a get, and it gets people with the rest. I see I'm Shapiro. going to be the butt of every query in this, uh, in this show Probably, today. Sorry. Probably, and, and, until you'll divert it to, you know, Rappaport <laughs> or something else, so we can uh, do that. Um, so you define that, that get request, and it goes to the backend and gets the data. With a slight change of code, instead of using find, you use live query, and instead of then, you use subscribe, that same REST get request will also issue a subscribe to a server event, okay? And with the basic implementation, we're using HTTP server events, and we can scale up to WebSockets and up to industry standard tools like Ably or PubNub. But the developer experience is simple. You just change two lines of code. Instead of find, you do live query. Instead of then, you do subscribe. The backend itself has a, 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 an, an understanding that you are registered to a specific query. So when an update comes to that data set, it knows to push messages back to you. Now, we started with a dream. We want, we want this to be the developer experience. We want this to be the API. Okay? And then we started implementing it, and it works. It works, and it scales. And So, so I want to pull us back to the, sim- to the more basic things for a minute. Because, you know, if somebody's listening to us, the obvious question is, this is really cool, but I'm using React to build my uh, front uh, and uh, web applications, or I'm using Vue, or I'm using Angular, or I'm using uh, Svelte. So the first, so am I using Remote instead of these frameworks, or in addition to these frameworks? Do you, like, how is the rendering implemented? So Remote is what we like to call play nice with others. Remote covers the communication layer between the front-end to the back-end to the server. On the front-end, you can use Angular, Vue, React, Svelte, Solid, or um, Quick. Vanilla.js. <laughs> it's not a problem. And also on the back-end, you can use Node.js with Express, or Festify, or Koa, or Next, okay? Or uh, we're getting close to also SvelteKit, or even DinoFresh. The idea here is that uh, Rimmel doesn't control everything. It's a library that, is, that you add to a project and provides you value where you need it, it doesn't dictate things to you. It doesn't fall things on you when you use it. Does that make sense? For, ex- for example, Remote has no opinions over how you handle your front-end state, state management. Okay, you can use uh, things like React Query, or you can, if, you, if you're using Vue, you can, you can use the uh, whatever Vue, Vue store that you want to use. It also has no opinions on your backend framework. We've had implementations using Remote with Express, Fastify, Nest.js. It's just, you know, it, we, you tie it at a certain uh, end on your back end and on your front end and use it to handle the communication and do what Remote does best, which is fetch data all the way from the database to your front end and also, and also back. We also haven't mentioned, just a, a quick no, uh, note about Remote, it also adds other things that you can define declaratively at the entity level and have 
reused both on the front end and the back end. One of the things is validation. We found it a real issue with developers defining data validations, either simple data validations such as uh, you know email uh, validation or, or phone number, and up to more complex stuff. And we found du- duplicate code defi- uh, defining the same uh, validation on the front end and on the back end, or sometimes it, the, the code gets gets different along the way, or people forget to validate on the back end and the front end. With Remount, it's a lot easier because you define the validation at the field level in your entity type. And that validation will, Remount will enforce that both on the front end code before it makes the network call, the HTTP call to the, to the back end, and in the back end before any data goes into the database. So I'll get to that in a minute, but because I wanted to just to make sure that the previous point was clear before we go there. So to just to emphasize the fact that Remount really effectively is not a framework. Remount, or the way that you're describing it, Remount is a library that's intended to serve a very particular purpose, which is to access CRUD data sources effectively and easily and type safely from the front end and the back end, regardless of which framework you might be using. Is that uh, a description that you would agree with? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that describes it very well. Another layer that it adds is also things that we've seen in, in many, many boilerplate codes that we've seen for Get. Like it's automatic has paging built right into it. It also has server-side sorting and server-side filtering built right into it. You see a lot of these apps that started like with some developer developing something, getting all the data, doing front-end work. And then when they reach 10,000 rows, the website collapses. Remote is designed from the ground up to give you all of those advanced functionalities without any cost. You just get them on your API. Okay, so you get server-side paging, sorting, filtering, and live queries, you only mentioned, without having to invest in developing and designing it all the way up and down, back and forth. So if I'm building a React, let's say, application that needs to deal with a database and I don't feel like doing SQL and I don't have a backend developer who will create some sort of microservice in, I don't know, Go or Java or whatever, and I need to deal with the database myself, then Remalt is a tool that I can use to really simplify that process, if I understand correctly. And I would even add to that, if you are a lazy backend developer like I am, who doesn't like to create those repetitive endpoints for put, post, delete, and get for every one of your entities with re-implementing paging and re-implementing server-side whatever and rewriting those SQLs. At the end of the day, backend developers spend so much time writing that code that is just copied and pasted with the mistakes, with the security vulnerabilities. And, and at the end of the day, it just does the same thing. It's just written again and again and again. So... If you are a backend developer who doesn't like uh, maintaining tons of code and rewriting validations that happen on the front end on the back end um, and doesn't like typing errors, then you would also use remote. So um, a few more questions about that. And it's so first of all, it is open source software, right? So is of there course. a licensing fee or something like that, or you can just take it and use it? Remote is completely open source and it will forever be open source. Okay. The next question is, what databases does it work with? So Remote has a nice little abstraction around the database where I can use the same API to query REST on the backend. 
And then I can use it on the backend to access the database. And so in terms of databases that we've implemented so far, we have a Postgres, of course. We have Knex, which is a library in, on the, it's a backend library that allows me to access a, a MySQL and SQLite, Oracle, SQL Server, Postgres, and several other databases. There's implementation also for MongoDB. And we also have front-end implementations for the browser SQLs, the web SQL and for the browser local storage. And we have a nice implementation on the backend that uses plain JSON files. And that's actually how I like to start my project. Yeah, so when you... yeah. Mm-hmm. I, have to, I have to touch on that myself because when I watched the video, that part really blew me away. And, and I have, really have to give you a lot of props for that. So just to clarify what that is, like you said, that effectively you create as part of Remote itself, you have like a built-in simple... I won't really call it a database. I'll call it a database in quote. That's a database-like facade for a bunch of JSON files. So each JSON file represents uh, a record. An entity. An entity. A collection, yeah. A collection. And and the, the benefit there is that you can use it during development, first of all, before you even have a database. So if you just want to try it out without setting up a database, or you haven't really decided which database you want to use. Or obviously, you can also use it during debugging if you don't want to, uh, if you don't have like a staging database in place and you want to play around with data and and not create any damage or something like that. So I I thought that it was a really, really cool idea. I've not seen it done anywhere else. Maybe others are doing it. I'm just not familiar with it. Uh, Did you you notice that, AJ, when you were looking at that video? So, well, I think, so I, I was listening to it. I wasn't, I wasn't watching it. And, and also I'd clicked on the Discord link. And so it was the video, when I, <laughs> the video was, you know, quarter size rather than normal size. <laughs> so, so I was listening to it and I'd glance over. So I, I think I heard about, I, I think I heard that part, but I did not, I did not actually visually see it. So, so yeah, the, the idea it. behind it, yeah, the, the idea that we had behind it is that when I'm starting to write an app, I just want to write my business logic. I don't want to waste time setting up databases, configuring tons of things or whatever. I want to write a few lines of code and get some data I can play with. So to get there, we try to minimize the number of lines of code to get to an actual business logic application. And we said, okay, a database is an abstraction. I can use anything. So let's start with a very basic JSON file-based database. It stores every entity in a separate file. And you can go pretty far with that. You can create a full-blown app. And when you're done, decide on the database that you want to deploy to. And like, I have applications where I develop using JSON and I deploy using Postgres. And that's great. It just works. You know, so two, two things on that. One, that is what Uncle Bob says in his book, Clean Architecture. He says that people... And, and the Go authors have said pretty much the same thing, but about uh, typing systems rather than about databases. That you, you, why would you make a decision that's so hard to change up front when you know the least about how your app will work and what your users users will need than you will ever know at any other time? So right. you want to delay that as long as possible. Also, I was in an interview one time, an interview that I that I passed, but ended up taking a different offer, and the the. The guy asked a question about 
let's say we need to build an app for car dealerships and hypothetically it's going to be Chevrolet and they're going to have a car sale and they're going to need uh where they're going to need listings for the 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 prices of the sale for every single one of their dealerships uh and it's got to be highly scalable and it it really you know it's got to be performant it's got to be scalable what what do you do and i looked at him shamefully and i kind of you know shrunk back a little bit and i said honestly there's got to be what you know 100 to a thousand dealerships per state there's 50 states you're talking about maybe a hundred thousand records but probably not even that much so i would just put it in a json file and replicate the json file and the guy looked at me and he said i have been waiting 10 years for someone to give me that answer (laughs) i have heard every answer in the the universe and I, i have been waiting literally 10 years to interview someone and have them tell me that answer because that is the right answer. Yeah, and it's also <laughs> the fact that you can probably run everything on a single node instance and you don't need like uh, uh, the scale out, whatever. Probably one, two for, for redundancy. But uh, yeah, anyway, but going back to the, the database thing. So mm-hmm. uh, you listed the number of databases that you support. Do you have like a sort of an a plugin type architecture that makes it easy to add additional databases? Like, I don't know, I need to support one that you currently don't. Is there a way for me to create this integration myself without having to wait on you to do it? Yes, yes, exactly that. A database is just an implementation of a very basic interface. It's relatively easy to implement. So you can very easily extend and add more databases. I'm Adding a database in just you know an hour or two when I need to, I got it. Actually, I've been recently in a, a hackathon where I needed to use a, a, um, oh. Google Sheets as a database. So I ended up writing an adapter to use Google Sheets as a database. Or on another project, I needed to use Monday's API as a database. So you can actually abstract any data source as a database, implement that interface that is needed, and you get the full remote uh, capabilities end to end. Okay, so that was one question. The other is we kept on talking about entities that are effectively TypeScript uh, types or TypeScript interfaces that you might, that you can say describe, kind of describe a record if you're thinking relational databases. Um, yeah. Do I need to make sure manually that that entity definition matches the database schema? Is that something that you do for me? now or maybe in the future? How does that work? Okay, so usually when I write code, I'm one of those guys that prefer to write code first and let the code create a database for me. We actually have a, a very simple engine in Remals that when the, the servers start, and if obviously you choose to enable it, it will automatically create the entities if they're missing in the database and will add columns that are missing. So if you add columns, those are added automatically. We found that this creates a very... A, a, forward compatible and backward compatible database migration uh, simplification solution. Um, And we also have codes that can read existing data schemas and generate those TypeScript classes for them. Uh, We are planning to create a CLI so you could be able to just run it yourself and not just copy the code from one of our articles and run it in your code, but create a nice CLI to get it running for you. Have you heard of SQL C? Is that a JavaScript? library it's it's a go it's library go li- mm-hmm. that 
it well it's not it's the the outer shell is go it it uses the mysql or the postgres parser it started as postgres it uses the c code mm-hmm. parser to read migration files and then it can spit out json that is the final output so it can read a directory that has 100 migration files and it can spit out json that is here is the schema after every single one of the migration files has been applied. So this is the schema as it will exist in the database, assuming that all of the migrations in the migration folder have been applied in order. So you don't have to write any custom logic for, well, MySQL has this special pragma or, or you know, proprietary syntax, and Postgres has this proprietary syntax. Uh, you know, Hopefully you're not using mm-hmm. MySQL anyway, but... But you, you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. You simply get the JSON that represents the schema at the end of it all. Mm-hmm. And then you can use that to instantiate your, your types. But I, the, one, the one thing, and, and in the case of SQL C, it'll generate Go code. And of course, you could use the JSON to generate JavaScript code as well. Mm-hmm. There, okay. there are people that have written adapters to generate other languages other than Go. Um, but the the one thing that I am curious about, and it's fine if you don't have a solution for this because I don't think there is a good one, but I love the idea of if you see a new column, add a new column. You can run a migration to upgrade from one column to another. But if I want to then rename that column back to the original column, is that possible? Or do I need to have like a name and then a name V2 and a name V3 and then I would just delete name and name v2 so that's a concern that's currently external to our implementation when i do those in my projects i create specific code into specific projects to handle them and, and i think that's also one thing about remote is that we don't try to solve all the problems we're trying to solve the 90 percent of problems where we're spending 90 percent of our time just repeating ourselves and doing things so with with the approach for migrations we said okay Adding entities, adding columns, it's safe. It doesn't break things. It's forward and backward compatible. And yep. when I need additional migrations, you know, we have a code sample on our website where how you can implement more specific migrations. And we just add them as we need them on the projects that we're working on. Personally, myself, I don't like deleting columns. And I view the database as a secondary uh, um, artifact in my code. Okay, so I don't mind if my code will have a column called first name and it will have a small annotation telling it in the database it's actually first name five. <laughs> okay, just like you've mentioned, although I don't do that often. But even if I do, it's okay because I, I consider the database as storage on those aspects. I really respect that. I, I like that a lot. That sounds very reasonable. I, I think that one of the reasons SQL gets a bad rap is the same reason that REST and GraphQL have a bad rap, is there's this draconian approach that you have to do the absolute. There's no middle ground. And I very much like the idea that, yeah, if you need to migrate your database, you can literally just read each row in, (laughs) change the value, update the column, write it back out, and have the name of the column that a field maps to change in your code. And this is... This this doesn't require specific database expertise. It's portable across databases. This is not this is not something that it's to me that seems very approachable. It would be a little unintuitive that name would might map to name five, 
But I think that that's a very acceptable trade-off when you consider all the complexities that could happen. And pardon my French, what a sequel head would probably tell you to do. Yeah, but so so often these days, I, I see people just putting JSON data inside SQL tables. No. <laughs> so, no, 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 so we're, not, we're not proponents of that. No. You're not proponents no. of that, but I, but I see but, it anyway, where you have a field called data, and that field contains a JSON blob. Uh, I see well, that if, you if you don't need it to be indexed, if you don't need it to be indexed, if it is, if it's stuff like comment or, yeah, you know, I, I can't think off the top of my head the types of fields would be there, but if it's not something that you're going to query or index. I don't have any problem with that. But if, but if it's simple I, to normalize, why not? I mean, if it's if it's if it's not extra work to normalize, yeah. It and and really, problems. your approach is kind of the the uh, the well the opposite of that because we talked about the fact that you strive to be as typed as possible. So really, we you know your approach is not to look at things as blobs of data, uh, but rather as typed fields. Which brings me back to one of the things that you were talking about before, um, uh, Yoni, and I kind of took us somewhere else, which was about the validation. So you talked about the fact that you validate, you can validate data on the front end, which is useful to give quick responses to users so that if they type something incorrectly, you, they don't have to wait for the round trip to get the correction or to the form submit. But you obviously also need to validate on the back end for data correctness and security purposes, uh, because you can can never trust the front end. Um, so, so it's great that you have a mechanism in place that effectively leverages can leverage the same validation on both sides. Uh, that's really cool, uh, and I like it a lot. It kind of goes to the whole concept of of the modern JavaScript frameworks which can do do the same rendering or, or templating mechanisms on the front end and the back end. Uh, so like I said, I really like that. And what I noticed is that the way that you implement it is using decorators, that you're kind of really influenced in that way by, I guess, by Angular, by Nest. Uh, so can you elaborate a, about this a little bit? <clears throat> Just yeah. to add one point about the validation, what was very important for us with validation is to make it as simple as possible, and but also support uh, as many cases as possible by using validations which are JavaScript functions and not, you know, uh, regular expressions or some type of, of, of validation language. We wanted actual Java TypeScript, okay, or JavaScript code to run both on the same code to run both on the front end and the back end, so that we can create as complex validations as we want. And be able to use it. So that that was just one important point I wanted to make about that. But yeah, no, I'm going. Mm -hmm. but, so in terms of decorators, uh, um, we started out with decorators because yeah, we were influenced by Angular and by Nest and by others. And uh, uh, as we evolved, we now support also uh, um, how do you call it um, on the fly types that don't really require the decorators themselves. Yeah. Okay. So there's when you're using Remote, you can use. Uh, Specifically in the in the next versions, it's going to come out. You can even use any other typing library that exists in TypeScript with Remote. Okay, so the the current version of Remote, you define a class and use decorator to 
add metadata to the columns like validations, authorization, to the columns and the entity itself. You also have a secondary way of creating it just by defining the class on the fly. You decide it's going to have a field, it's going to be of type string, and it's going to do the same similar syntax to what you would use with Zod or with Typebox or others. So from that, the type will be derived and the same functionality of uh, decorators will work like that. And we are also planning to support that you'll be able to use Zod types and type box types and pretty much any other typing language to define your types and then have Rimalt handle the database all the way to the front end communication back and forth. It actually brings me to another a, a small topic that we cover, but I think it's also important. When you look at a data type, consider, for example, date. Okay? It, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a software developer for well over 20 years, and I'm still surprised that date is an unsolved problem. Okay, date in the database is represented in one way, in memory in another way, and in the DTOs that people send back and forth in the JSON objects, it's represented in a third way. And we spend so much tra- time translating between these types back and forth from the front end to the back end. So this is again one of those concerns that you solve once on the entity level. You can actually define for each field on the entity level how it's stored in the database, how it goes and serialized to a DTO, and how it's presented in memory. Okay, we have, and actually how it's also inputted in an HTML input. So when I read it from the database, maybe it's a date time, maybe it's a string, maybe even it's a number, and I'm translating it to a date in memory. When I'm moving it to JSON, I'm moving into the JSON standard of date. And when I'm translating it to an input, okay, to an HTML input, I'm translating it to the way an HTML input wanted to happen. And instead of writing that code again and again and again in multiple frameworks, multiple endpoints, this again, gets in our single source of truth and covered end-to-end. I think that's really cool. I think there's a lot of power in, let's say, standardizing and normalizing the, the, the flow of the data. Because at the end of the day, especially when working on CRUD applications, effectively, that's, that's what you do. A lot of times when I try to explain to people why frameworks are so successful, in, in in web development, my explanation is that at the end of the day, most of us are writing the same sorts of applications over and over again. And very often those applications are CRUD applications. So anything that can automate and, and streamline as much of the process of building such applications is definitely a good thing. And, and the success, for example, of Rails is a testament to that. So if you can bring the same sort of things to to the JavaScript or TypeScript world, I think that's a, a huge a huge benefit. Um, by the way, we were talking about decorators. It's also worth noting that uh, decorators have recently moved to a stage three uh, proposal in in the context of ECMAScript. So for now, we're still relying on TypeScript to compile the decorators away, but. Uh, Pretty soon, we'll actually it will be able to actually leave the decorators in the resulting JavaScript code, and it will be handled by the JavaScript engines themselves directly, which will be interesting to see exactly how this works. Um, I just want to say to you know to our listeners that remote user and to future remote users, you do you love decorators? That's great. Remote is for you. You hate decorators? That's great. Remote is also for you. Okay, because there, 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 are, there are ways to define entities and fields without using decorators. It's sort of an, an implement, implementation detail, you know, the way you see it. We, you know, we want your entities to have the metadata and to have the definitions required for remote to work and, and save all that hard work from you. 
but it, it doesn't have to be really have to be decorated. Yeah, I know. In, interestingly, decorators is kind of this uh, polarizing topic. Some people yeah. really love them, and some people really hate them. It's it's interesting. Mm-hmm. You can use JSDoc with JavaScript. We actually have a project as an example for that that works. We had that request. You don't, you don't have to use TypeScript at all. Although TypeScript, you know, we love it. So why? But uh, that's, that's a different <laughs> that's a different discussion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, at the end of the day, it feels clean and simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- I think I'll put it this way: for people working, especially just in the back end, being able to do without that extra compilation step is is uh, is certainly is a boon uh the fact that you can just load the code especially now that you know you're using the latest version of node it has really strong ECMAScript support built in so you choose and if you're using JSDoc, you just load it and it runs uh whereas for the front end you probably need to compile anyway because of jsx or what or you know something like svelte or whatever so you might, if you're going to compile anyway, then you might as well just use TypeScript. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I don't think that the TypeScript compilation is not itself that slow, right? There's amazing tools today that were done by Avenue. The Vite, for example, does that amazingly. And on the back end, there's TSX. It just you know, runs Node with TypeScript seamlessly. So it's not as much as it takes time, but it is some developers don't like the interpolation. They want the code that they wrote to be the code that runs. And I can, I can respect that. And, and then, that, and, of course, support that. and of course, you can just use Dino, which natively mm-hmm. supports TypeScript. Kind of. Right. You mean Bun? Bun. I think also, I think also Dino. <laughs> of course, no, Dino. Dino. Dino does too. It's just I, I, yeah, I, I like where Bun's going. Dino. Dino had its shot, and it it floundered, and I'm over it. But um, <laughs> the what the oh, and also Dino is Rust, which is complicated. Bun is Zig, which is super simple. But. <laughs> Let's not go there. The, okay. the main <laughs> reason that build steps are convoluted today. What is the main reason right now that build steps take minutes rather than seconds? So they actually don't anymore. You know, when I'm using Vit, it's really transparent. You just, you know, the, the bundlings that it uses for the phone and takes maybe a, a few seconds, even not a few seconds, a few milliseconds, but that's pretty much it. Yeah. Vit- what about SAS? Is SAS still a thing? Because that was the thing that seemed like it took the most time. It, it takes, seems you know, four it or five seems, minutes. It seems that everybody has kind of left SAS for Tailwind or something. Uh, that's uh, that's where the, everybody seems to be going. But but it's not really my area of expertise. I have to say, I I, I roll I will roll with whatever the project uh, creators decided to to use. Usually, I come into existing projects. And help them work on, on improving performance. So usually it is what it is, uh, and I hardly ever start a new project myself. Um, <laughs> if, I, if I may, the circle, reason... circle back to something AJ asked before. I think he was. I think he was trying to ask. Well, this this you know, remount sounds great for really simple CRUD stuff, but when things will get a little bit complex, then you'll have to 
you know, just throw it out the window. Uh, and I just wanted to say that we've been using, you know, ourselves and some people that we're in contact with have been using Rimmel for, for really complex applications and, and situations for thousands of end users. I, and to be clear, I was saying that more about Rails. Okay. Not remote necessarily. Okay. I was saying that the Rails, the Rails CRUD style is very, very simple relationships. But you clarified earlier, this is a library, not a framework. So it's not like I have to bust out of it. I get to use it where it helps, not where it hurts. That's one thing. And also, we've taken trouble to really implement a lot of more complex CRUD scenarios. Some examples I can throw out are computed fields, which are not physically stored in database, but are computed on the fly while they go back to the front end. Um, we've implemented relations to a certain extent, not everything all the way, because we think it's, it's an overly complex problem, but we've implemented some stuff. And uh, th there are other examples, and there's also obviously escape hatches. If you want to use raw SQL, you don't have to you know, write your own endpoint, you can still use the remote endpoints and then just translate your filter to raw SQL filters somewhere in, in these escape hatches we've prepared. So, and also, you know, if you have like, you know, so just up, wait a minute, before, before you move on, a question about that. So if I want to create my own, you know, handcrafted, custom, sophisticated SQL query, not rely on you, for some reason, because I don't know, it's doing all sorts of sophisticated logic or stored procedures, or I don't know what, I can do that, correct? Yes, but even further than that, what Yoni just said, of course you can create your own custom sophisticated SQL and do that, because Remote is just a tool in your tool chain and you can always use anything else. But what we've taken even further than that is we found that in most cases, these uh, SQLs were there to solve some kind of micro-filtering problem. Like, I want to query all the orders of customers who live in London or something like that, that multiple relations and multiple complexities. What we've done in Remalt is we will allow you to box it, okay? Box that part of OSQL into a custom filter and then use that filter in, without replacing entirely Remalt. So you can benefit from the, the full card capabilities, but still get to inject a raw filter that is extremely sophisticated using the latest and greatest SQL. So, so that was that was what I was aiming at. So you're not talking about saying, okay, you can use Remalt, but if you need to, you can circumvent Remalt. You're saying, obviously, yeah, you can do that, but you can also leverage Remalt also in these custom scenarios as well. So I can like have my own custom SQL query, getting data out of my database, feeding it into Remalt, so that it then, from that point on, access to that data is done through remote. Correct. And, and even when you write the SQL, you can reuse, like, we have a translator that takes a remote filter and translate it to an SQL filter or a Mongo filter or Connects filter. So even when you are building that custom part, you can still leverage other codes in your application that <laughs> represents the filter in a certain way. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Uh, AJ, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm thinking that we probably should be moving towards picks soon. So uh, in, in that case, I wanted to give you two a chance to, um, you know, if there's anything that we neglected to mention or neglected to cover that you think is important, you know, now's the time. So actually, before moving too much on, I want to circle back to something that AJ said earlier about over-designing solution and over-designing situations. 
for me, a, a writing code in the last I know, four or five years was an experiment on how much we can do for as little money as possible. I've taken upon myself to write some applications for NGOs. And I ended up, we wanted to prove Remark. We wanted to prove that it works on scale. So we wrote an application for a food bank distribution mechanism. You know, there's food banks in Israel that distribute food to people in need every once in a while, like now in the holidays. So we wrote a small app like that and it grew, it grew, it grew. Then COVID came and it exploded. It was used by the Israeli military to distribute food to cities that were in lockdown. It was used by multiple NGOs. And we had the privilege of taking the same code that was designed to service 50 food parcels, okay? And it was serving 17,000 food parcels in 2019. In 2020, it was serving 17,000 food parcels in a day, okay? It's scaled from what it used to do in a year to do in a single day. And I don't think we could have done that if we didn't have Remark, because because of the, the way the code was designed, using Remark, scaling up and scaling and, and making robust changes to the code wasn't that complicated, okay? And, and we ended up today, we're serving about 450,000 food parcels a year, running on a server that costs me $16 a month, okay? And, and for me, this was amazing. You know, I came from the enterprise business, from C-Sharps and SQLs and Oracles, and everything has to be thousands and thousands of dollars. And I too often see that, that a developer starts an application with a $1,000 monthly fee for Amazon. Whereas you can do such amazing things with, with really starting from free with Railway and other providers. And even paying $16 a month can handle half a million food deliveries a year. I have to agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, so don't over-engineer, you know, over-engineer, start simple over-provision, and grow based you need. Over-provision. Yeah. You know, we are, we are in, a, in a time where uh, startups are starting to, you know, uh, be much more ca- cash mindful. Uh, thinking about how to spend their money because it's difficult to raise more money. So all of a sudden, you know, making efficient use of whatever resources and not over-provisioning is becoming a really, uh, really in demand, let's say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think Remark helps there by allowing you to get the time to market fast. You can build fast, deploy fast, get your market fast, and then grow. So I have to say, I, as always, always was skeptical when we started the show. But you get the rare AJ Award. <laughs> Not that that's worth anything. <laughs> but <laughs> of, uh, I'm interested in this. This sounds really well thought out, well designed. This sounds like something that I would use. I don't know when the next opportunity would be that... I, I would use this. I'm not promising, hey, I'm going to go start using this. But I know that this is a tool in the toolbox. And this is something that I personally am interested in uh, checking out, particularly you know, if I can find those JS doc examples, or if you'd put those in, in the chat so we can have them in the show notes. I'd like to check that out. And on my next project where I'm considering using Go because of all the nice type safety and the... the uh, you know, just the ergonomics of that. I, I'm, I will at least look at the docs on this and see if it's worth trying it out in Node. Yeah. Because I, I like what you're saying. I like that it's not tied to a specific framework. I'm a little bit fuzzy. I did look at some of the docs while we were chatting and stuff. I'm a little bit fuzzy on how exactly 
this is going to work with the different state management tools because it seems like it has to have a strong tie-in with state management tools to be able to do that live updating and stuff like that. But I, I really like the idea that you you generate some code where the API of how you access the, the, the data and save the data is the same on the front end and the back end and that it's it's really focused on, you know, do one thing, do it well, and be more of a middleware, whether it's a, a node middleware or a, you know, people don't really use the word middleware in React, but that's what this is. It's a, it's, it's a state middleware or whatever. Data fetching. But middleware. the middleware yeah. approach is something that I personally think is a great approach. I'm glad that we had you on the show and, and that yeah. I, I got to learn about this and have my expectations overturned. Yeah, and I'll add to that, that again, uh, I don't know if uh, when I'll, I'll need to be using something like this in a project, but listening to the way you describe it, it seems to me that it could uh, integrate in an interesting way, let's say, with uh, something like a React query uh, as a means of really simple state management because you probably don't need a sophisticated state management when you're database backed, you you don't want to have multiple sources of truth. That's so right. so doing something like React query on top of it sounds really interesting. And another interesting integration, I think, might be trying to use something like this in the context of Astro. I mentioned that before our conversation. Um, you know, because Astro kind of brings a lot of simplicity to how you build your front end and you bring simplicity in how the, you know you manage the data. So I think it could be interesting to tie these two together. Again, I've never tried, so I don't know, but it seems like an interesting thing to, a thing to try. Mm-hmm. I agree. And, you know, one of the things that we try to do is to make it extremely easy to get started with Rimal. So on the rimal.dev website, there's tutorials on how to create a full stack app with React, with Angular, with Vue, and with Next.js. And we actually have videos of those, which are one-hour videos from start to end. Currently, we have Next and React, and I'm preparing the Angular and Vue, and maybe later even Svelte. So anyone who wants to check Remote out can just go do the tutorial. It could take them you know, an hour and a half, and just feel how you start from you know, VCLI and end up deployed on the cloud on Vercel or Railway within just an hour and a half. And one last thing that I wanted to mention and I forgot earlier, so I apologize for that. One other thing that Rimal does is also backend calls, which means imagine that you have API calls that just does something that is not a structure discard, like, I don't know, generate report or create a whatever. So we also made sure that these calls are 100% typed end-to-end because we found that calling the API with the correct parameters and the correct parameters typing is a problem that still exists these days. So of course, you can use tools like TRPC to solve that. But once you're within remote, you can also use remote end-to-end typing for that as well. That's an interesting space right now that a lot of, a lot of is going on in it. You've got, uh, like you mentioned, uh, TRPC. You've got uh, Bling in the context of uh, um, uh, Solid and uh, TenStack. Uh, we, we spoke with Tanner last week. And you've got uh, uh, what Quick does with server functions. So it's, and obviously React server components. So it's becoming a really interesting space of how to move data back and forth in a type safe way, in ways that kind of simulate function calls or component uh, integrations. Exactly. And, and I think Remote fits extremely well into that landscape because none of these tools handle the CRUD. 
Okay, <laughs> they, they they support end-to-end type safety, but they don't cover the server-side sorting, paging, filtering, validation, authorization. Even you know, even consistent authorization. Imagine those API where the user is not allowed to delete. I want him also not to see the delete button while relying on the same definition. That's something that no other tools does these days. And, and we really believe that the concept of having an entity with a single source of truth for typing, validation, authorization, and anything else around it makes a whole lot of sense and, and makes CRUD applications easy. Sounds good to me. So AJ, what do you say? We are going to be moving to PIX now? Let's do it. Let's move to PIX. Do we want uh, the contact information before or after? I always forget. Yeah, let's get contact information. Let's do it. That's important. So obviously you can find Rimalt on GitHub, just R-E-M-U-L-T or uh, Rimalt.dev. And oh, did we from, talk about what it stands for? Uh, it stands for a name that we found that doesn't exist in Google. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> we, um, when we started our previous company uh, uh, 17 years ago, we've done it out of one room in my house that used to be in a street called Rimalt in, in oh, cool. Robert Gunn. different spelling. So we, we, <laughs> yeah, with a bit of a different spelling and we try to find something that when you Google it, you'll just find us. So it was a hard, <laughs> a hard search, but uh, we ended up with this name, and it's actually kind of cool. So Remalt on GitHub, Remalt.dev. How do we get? How do people get in touch with you guys specifically? So obviously we have a Discord that we are uh, very attentive for. Uh, on our GitHub page, there's also our email and Twitter handle. Uh, so we, we are extremely available. And if you'll find any one of our videos online, you'll probably see my personal phone number as well. <laughs> <laughs> If anybody wants to call you in Israel. No, but but yeah, the dis- but the Discord really, you know, just log into the Discord server and ask anything and we're we're there. And also I don't know I don't know if it's worth mentioning, if it's if it's interesting, but Noam is gonna be presenting remote in, in a few conferences in the end in the end of May, this May, uh Dev Days Europe, DevOx Europe, and uh, React Summit. So if if anyone's there and wants to learn more about remote and see some live coding, some really uh I would call it a show, a live coding show <laughs> that Noam does on these uh, conferences, then you're welcome. Sounds cool. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and get to the ending section here. So we got two things. One is self-promos, which is basically a dedicated space for you to unabashedly plug, obviously, Remalt and anything else that you want to, because... <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't. And then the next thing is picks, which is basically anything that you think is cool or awesome. And we're going to do the one first and the other second. So first, let's just do self promo. I'll start with you, Dan, even though you don't have anything. Uh, and then we'll go to the other two. <laughs> well, uh, actually, this time I kind of have. I'm not sure if it's a pick or a promo. Uh, I'll be also speaking at a couple of conferences in the upcoming months. So uh, I'll be speaking at the IJS London uh, at the end of April, uh, April the 27th. And I'll also be speaking at uh, JS Nation uh, in their virtual conference in uh, on June uh, 5th. And uh, I'll be speaking at a conference called J Nation in Portugal. So it's funny, JS Nation and J Nation, two separate conferences. Uh, I'll be speaking at that conference uh, in uh, Coimbra in, in Portugal, uh, live uh, in June. Um, what is it? I think it's seven, six or seventh. I need to check. I don't remember off the top of my head. One of these, either the sixth or the seventh. 
Uh, and finally, I'll be also speaking at, at the React Next conference in Israel uh, towards the end of June. Uh, so if anybody wants to meet me, hear me talk about stuff usually related to performance, wants to chat with me about uh, JS Jabber and tells us how much he, they enjoy our podcast. And, you know, people have done it and I really appreciate it when they do. So feel free to, you know, meet, to approach me at the conferences and, you know, we'll chat about whatever. Uh, so yeah, that, that's my, my self-promo. And by the way, I'm also looking for additional conferences for later in the year. So if anybody knows about an interesting conference that they, they would like me to attend, you know, feel free to drop me a line. So that's my self-promo. All right. Okay, so uh, I'll go next. Uh, so I have <laughs> a few things to say. So first of all, use Rimal. Go to rimal.dev, run our tutorials, play with it. Uh, and we also are going to be speaking, as Yoni said, on Dev Days Europe and DevOx Europe. And I have an amazing live coding uh, uh, sessions that I do. And so if you have a conference or just a group of interesting people who want to meet me, I'll be more than happy to fly over and do that. I've done that in Budapest, in Vienna, in Prague, and I'm doing that Poor in Amsterdam you. and Eindhoven. Those are, <laughs> I enjoy it. No, people I, buy me bills. So. No, and, those, and you know, those are really lovely cities. So, <laughs> you know, what's not, what's not to like? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, um, also, one other thing that I want to say here, I'll take this opportunity to use. We are, uh, um, I think we have, we love Rimalt and we have a great vision of where we want it to go and we love contributors. I think that the, the notion of contributing to open source is, is booming these days and, you know, not all contribution has to be code. There's a lot of contributions that can be done with content, with blog articles, with videos. And, and for us, for me specifically as an Israeli with an Israeli accent and Israeli writing skills, uh, any such uh, contributions would be greatly appreciated. And if you love coding, if you have, love crowd applications, please don't hesitate. Write something, do a video, do anything. I would help push it all the way around. And that would be an amazing contribution to the remote success story. Uh, let me start by thanking my wife. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> now you've got me in trouble. <laughs> and and uh, a lot. Uh, third. That's the first, second, and third thing I want to say. And the fourth thing is, of course, um, give remote a spin. Uh, check check out the, the the repo. Give us a star. Uh, try it out, and most importantly, give us feedback. We're we really love getting feedback. We love hearing what people have to say. You don't like it? You do like it? You're having a pro you're having problems uh, starting out. Our documentation sucks. Anything really? Uh, we just love feedback. So give it a spin and tell us what you think. That's the most I can ask. All right. And then what I've got, the, the, so BNNA is coming together. That's cloud hosting, privately owned, privately owned all the way down and cheaper by the bunch. So by privately owned all the way down, we've got privately owned servers that we privately own in a privately owned data center. We are going to, but, but the landing page will go live either today or tomorrow. So it'll be out by the time that this, this is out, as well as probably our first payment method, which will be Dash, which is digital cash. It's a private, it's a, it's a privately owned cryptocurrency. It's not VC backed or anything like that. And then we also have a privately owned credit card processor 
that uses privately owned banks. So this is a complete uh, decentralized, censorship-resistant infrastructure. It is privately owned in every possible way that we have been able to find privately owned. So there's there's no funny business from outside sources, and we do have redundancy in in multiple layers and in layers where we don't yet have uh, secondary privately owned um, uh, partners. We're we are still looking for that, and if you know of some that are in any of those categories, let me know. Uh, and then, so when you say we, you mean yourself and Ron Swanson? I don't know who that is. I know it's a meme. It's the libertarian. It's it's the libertarian guy from <laughs> the Parks and Rec show. So, uh, no, so it's uh, Ryan Burnett and JoJo Bite. So th- those are those okay, are the three cool. of us. No, I was just so kidding. Far. Good for you. I, I really I really approve of what you're doing. Let's put it this. Thanks. And then by cheaper by the bunch, we I don't know what the pricing is going to be. I'm going to throw out wacky numbers that aren't entirely real, but something like. 50 cents a month for 64 megs of RAM and an eighth vCPU up to $200 a month for 128 gigs of RAM and uh, 12 vCPU. So those numbers, I've tried to pick numbers that are ridiculously, uh, well, not ridiculous. They're probably off. They might be off by an order of magnitude. But basically what I'm saying is you can get with us cheaper than you can get anywhere else on the cheap end and the price actually goes down as you need more so rather than one banana one dollar two banana five dollar three banana call for enterprise pricing it's one banana (laughs) one dollar ten banana five dollar that's that's kind of what and we can do that because it's privately owned all the way down there's no VCs, so there's no pressure to inflate prices or do so-called parity pricing where people who are doing better have to pay more. I, I really don't like the idea of parity pricing, which is what you see with Amazon and with most of these other cloud providers where, you know, it, it, you the, the, the quote-unquote poor people get in for free, but then the quote-unquote rich people have to pay exponentially uh, you know, as things go up, so we're 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 flattening that curve to just a linear scale. Uh, pardon, pardon any political. Uh, th- that wasn't meant to be political. That was just literally talking about the curve on the graph. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. and then I won't I won't do a pick because I took up too much time with that. I didn't mean to speak that much about it, but um, we'll do picks too. I have a question for that. So. Will it also support like managed deployment like Heroku or um, or Railway or those kind of tools? Or will it be more so bare bones? Our aspiration is to do the hybrid approach. So I actually really like what Heroku does. Heroku could have been a runaway success if it weren't VC-backed because they don't own any of their own servers. So they have to piggyback mm-hmm. on Amazon. And as Amazon's prices scale up, Heroku's prices have to scale up. And since they had free customers for 10 years, somebody has to pay back the money for the free customers. But in terms of their tooling, we all like the tooling that Heroku provided, but with the caveat that you should still get root access. So you should be able to have Mm -hmm. your cake and eat it too. There's no reason that you can't have a container and have root access to that container. So I'm out of Mm -hmm. the gate. 
we're, we're doing a container model, but it's going to feel like VMs. It's going to be container pricing with VM access is kind of the, the mix. But as we're able to develop the tooling, I suspect that it's going to feel like the convenience of Heroku as we, as we get the tooling out. But starting out, it's going to be very, very simple. Just, you know, you, you buy a bunch and then you can allocate within your bunch um, what you, so, so you, you buy a bunch that has some units, some units of RAM, some units of CPU. And if you can make 64 megabyte containers and that solves your needs, then you can make, you know, eight 64 megabyte containers inside of it. Whatever fits in your bunch is that's what we're, that's what we're planning to release is that you get an allocation, you fill the allocation whichever way you want. We'll give you a couple of, you know, quote unquote, click button options for, you know, that'll work for the average use case. But um, you're going to, you're, mm-hmm. it's cheaper by the bunch because you're going to buy a bunch and then you're going to fill out that bunch with what, what you need. So it's, it's going to feel like DigitalOcean, hmm. like a cross between DigitalOcean yeah, and Heroku. I feel like saying, ch- hmm? I feel like saying challenge accepted. <laughs> to see what I can do with 64 it, megabytes. You can run a web server. You can run a Node Express server. Yeah. yeah I, you can run you, you can. You, to, you probably can't run the build process on there, but you can run the the uh, the actual service. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. but yeah, let's talk about it later. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then, so picks. Yeah. So I'll start. Um, so my first pick is, you know, we're we're just past uh, April first at the time of the recording is April third. So there were obviously the 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 whole bunch of obligatory April first uh, pranks and and jokes and stuff. The one that I liked most though was a tweet from uh, the Solid JS guys, who who fake introduced a new API called Create, so you can do uh, const my app equals await create, and then you pass in a string, a parameter, which is a string describing what you want the component to do. <laughs> and it would use <laughs> chat GPT to generate the code that actually does that thing for you. So it was like a new jet, ch- chat GPT-based uh, API. Uh, I really like that, uh, that uh, April Fool's, uh, Fool's joke, which kind of reminds me of my second pick, which is, um, so somebody suggested to me that the interesting thing to do is to ask ChatGPT about yourself, that if you've done anything, you know, of note before 2021, um, you can, (laughs) you can, uh, that maybe it'll know about it. So it was really interesting. So I asked ChatGPT what it knows about myself, and it exactly shows the benefit and also the problems or limitations with ChatGPT. So it actually provided a pretty good summary of who I am and things that I've done and what I'm known for. But it included some subtle mistakes that would be difficult to catch for somebody other than me. So for example, it mentioned that I worked at Wix, but it also mentioned that I worked at Akamai, which I never did. Or conversely, when I phrased the question differently, it said that not only did I work at Wix, but that I was one of the founders of Wix, which, you know, I wish, but <laughs> but I'm not. So, no, we actually had uh, Nadav Avrami uh, a, uh, like, uh, a few episodes back, and he is one of the founders of Wix. So, yeah. Um, so I know how that looks like, but it's, <laughs> but it's not me. 
Um, so that kind of just shows both the, the strength that it, it wrote a pretty good overview summary, pretty flattering, by the way, of who I am. But like I said, some subtle mistakes that could easily slip through if you're not familiar with, with the topic matter. So that's kind of the big challenges with the, the, the whole chat GPT thing for me. And those would be my picks. Oh, yeah. And the ongoing war in Ukraine where, you know, everybody can, you know, do what they can to help the people of Ukraine. I always mention that. Uh, so those would be my picks for today. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I'd like to reflect that about ChatGPT. We should remember that ChatGPT was never designed to be right. It was designed to sound well. Okay, the, the entire design behind ChatGPT is to show that it can write articles that will be well-written and well-read, not necessarily factually true. Okay, and, and so we, sh- we shouldn't take its word for it. I've seen it write code samples that were amazing with packages that never existed. Like NPMI, my perfect solution, which is there's no package like that. It doesn't do anything that it says, but the code looked really, really smart. So we should remember that it's designed to, to, to demo that and, and not much more than that. Um, yeah, and so for, for my end, I want to give a shout out to uh, um, Thunder Client, which, have, which is a VS Code extension that just gives you Postman experience within VS Code. It's really simple, it's really great, and I use it I use it tons, both for presentation and for development. And it's obviously free, and the VS Code extension, which I think is a great, great tool. Um, and Yoni, again, your wife. Yeah, my First wife. Of all. Yeah, I wasn't really prepared for this part of the <laughs> talk. Oh, well, you have uh, a favorite movie, a favorite uh, book, a favorite uh, no, uh, we can, artist, we, whatever. We can we can stay with with software uh, frameworks and libraries. Not that it needs my shout out, but I, I just you know we, we just we discussed it now a few days ago that that some in some uh, uh, meetups where non presents uh, remote, they you know we we show remote uh, using we start up with a Vit based uh, project React project. And and some people are not aware of what is Vit, which is very funny for me because I thought it was kind of the you know new mainstream. But if it, if it, it doesn't really need my shout out, but I think Vit is uh, is fantastic. Uh, just works well, does what it's meant to do. Not trying to do more than what it's supposed to do. Uh, extremely fast, simple to use, and we enjoy it very much. So thank you for Vit. That's my pick. That's from uh, the the guy who created uh, uh, View. Uh, Avenue. Yeah. Avenue. Yep. Exactly. Avenue. All right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an it's amazing tool and it's changing the industry. Oh. Everyone now uses V. Oh yeah, for sure. SvelteKit uses V. Angular is going to change to V on the next version. Solid so is using V. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think Ryan Ryan Cognato, the the creator of of Solid, kind of talked about the fact that it kind of created uh, uh, like a, a, a platform that all the framework uh, creators can actually build on and kind of jumpstart framework development because it does a lot of the heavy lifting that they used to need it to do themselves. The only framework mm-hmm. which, which I think is not moving in that direction is Next.js, and I'm not sure why. Yeah, they're creating their own thing with, uh, yeah. what's it called, TurboPack, I think. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure why they do, where they do that, but... Well. They can <laughs> they're they VC yeah, funded. They have the money. <laughs> that's, that's, okay. that's okay. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. All right. Just because they can is a, is a great answer. All right. I will add one pick, which is Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. I'm playing it through again in order to get my my hype 
up to the on par level for a Zelda fan for Tears of the Kingdom. And goodness knows, I think I said this last episode, but I mean, I'm just, I'm playing the game really slow and I'm trying to visit all the different areas. And it's just, it's just amazing. I think, I think in my first two or 300 hours of playing the game, I think I only visited about a quarter of the map. It's just, it's insane. (laughs) Oh, and I'm looking, I'm looking forward to Tears of the Kingdom. I'm, I'm hesitant, but I'm looking forward to it. So with that, thanks everybody for coming on. And we look forward to your continued improvement and success with Remolt. And uh, yeah, I don't know what else I need to say to end this thing, but uh, we'll go adios. Bye. (laughs) Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye.